So if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. title of today's message is The Unlikely Hero. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be reading my Bible and looking at some of the people who have gone before in the faith and, and think, wow, these were like spiritual supermen and women. Somehow they came like right out of their mothers with this spiritual superman cape on, and they were able to do great and mighty exploits for God. And it just seems like they were somehow born under a special anointing or born under some type of special power that gave them the ability to live a life that was really awesome for God. But sometimes we forget that the people of the Bible were just that. They were people. They were people that had their own dreams. They were people that had their own fears. People that had their own securities. And they were people that had personal failures and setbacks. Just about every single one of them had a major personal failure in their life. I mean, consider the following. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar and a con man. Leah was ugly and cross-eyed. Joseph was abused. He was abandoned, falsely accused, and falsely imprisoned. Moses, the great leader of the Bible who wrote a lot of the Old Testament, had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab, who was in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a great, 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 great grandma of his, was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were considered too young to be in the ministry. David was a violent man who had an affair and murdered the, per, the husband of the woman he had an affair with. And he's considered a man after God's own heart. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Don't you, aren't you glad this morning we do not belong to the first church of Isaiah? That would be very bad. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Imagine that potluck. <laughs> Peter denied Christ. The disciples were so spiritual they fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything and Mary refused to help at the potluck. The Samaritan woman was divorced and more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And to top it all off, Lazarus was dead. That's quite a list, isn't it? If you were to put any of these people in front of a pastoral search committee, their resume would be in the trash before it even got to the committee. And if somehow it snuck through the secretary in the church, they'd be laughed out of the room as soon as they looked at their spiritual resume. And today, we're going to study the life of such a man. Gideon is unique in the, heroes, in the heroes of our faith because he didn't start out as this super spiritual person like he's the only one in Israel that stayed faithful to God. He was called out of a life of very deep sin. He, along with all of Israel, had fallen into a pagan idolatrous worship situation. And they, what happened is the, the Israel fell... Um, after Joshua and Caleb died, they fell into sin and the idolatry surrounded them and had um, taken up uh, idol worship. And the condition of Israel was so bad during the time of the judges that this phrase keeps re reoccurring throughout the biblical record of this time. That says, in those days, Israel had no king. 
and everyone did as they saw fit. Sounds kind of like today, doesn't it? And as a people, Israel found themselves in the time of judges in this circular pattern regarding their spiritual life. They would start out with obedience to God. Everything would be fine. People would be worshiping the way that God told them that they had to worship and focusing on God alone. Then suddenly, compromise would come in and they would start to slide into a sinful condition. They would then become oppressed or some nation would take them over or subjugate them somehow because of their sin. They would get so uncomfortable with this that they would cry out to God and God would raise up a judge to drive out the oppressor and lead them in repentance and deliverance and revival for the life of that judge. And then when that judge died, that whole cycle started over again with the raising of another judge. And the title of judge here isn't the black-robed Judge Wapner, Judge Judy, you know, a person sitting behind a bench, a lawyer that decides court cases. The word in the Hebrew really means a deliverer. And some of these men and women and one woman were deeply flawed, and Gideon was one of them. Remember, we talked about Gideon being afraid, Samson being a womanizer. Some of them had made big mistakes and were deeply flawed. Now, that is a backstory to the times that existed during the time that Gideon was called of God. We're going to look through his calling this morning and his life and learn from him and what made him a hero of the faith. Judges chapter 6. Verse 1, we're going to look at the condition that led to his calling becoming a judge. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountains, in the clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, The Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped out in the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the land of, or hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples contained in it, Father. Especially dealing with how different people live their lives on mission before you. So, Father, I ask, Lord, as we look at the life of Gideon this morning, we can learn the lessons from his life. And we can see, Father, that even though we may be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven, we are still special in your eyes and still can be used, no matter what has happened, no matter what has been done in our lives, that we can still be used by you that the potter can remake any clay that this world has tried to shatter. 
Father God, we thank you for this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So keep your finger in Judges chapter 6. We'll be going back there in just a minute. We're going to start, though, by breaking down a little bit of what Israel faced in Midian. Now, the Midianites in Gideon's time were not a nation as you think of a nation. There was not a defined border or a kingdom set up or anything like that. They were pretty much a nomadic people living in tents with, with different groups of them living in different spots. You remember that Moses found sanctuary among them in the southeast portion of the Sinai Peninsula, that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest of Midian. However, during the time of the judges, many of their scattered tribes were the Old, version, Old Testament version of land pirates. They would let others do the sowing and planting, let others do the harvesting of crops, and they would wait until they actually started to prepare the harvest for storage, and then suddenly come in and raid and take it all. Those of us with Norwegian heritage know that our ancestors in Norway, called the Vikings, and not the football team over there, did the same exact thing to Scandinavia, Greenland, Iceland, and different parts of England. The Vikings did the same kind of thing. So these were like the modern-day Vikings. Now Midian did this with the livestock. They did this with the tools. They did this with the properties. And even the children, the young women and, and, and the boys, they would steal them from the families. Several times a year, they just descended on the northern tribes of Israel and just took whatever they wanted. And not only that, but periodically, they would have bands of people just wandering through houses, taking stuff on whatever whim they had. And if they found weapons, they would kill, these kind of, they would kill the people for trying to raise up some type of force against them. For them, this was a perfect situation. They really don't have to do any work. They just got to go steal the work of other people. So that's the oppression that Israel faced for turning their back on God. God's hand of protection was gone on those northern tribes, and his favor was completely absent. The Midianites here are a picture of what sin does to every single person that gives into it. They are an object lesson for us to see what happens when God's hand of favor is removed from your life. What it says is that you will suffer the oppression of an enemy. You will be vulnerable to his attacks, and God's favor will not be with you. And that's what we learn when we study situations like what exists here in the time of the judges. Another thing that we learn is that God will allow oppression to worsen until you repent. He does this because he loves you, not because he's, he gets some type of pleasure from disciplining you. He does it because he loves you, because he understands the destructive nature of sin. He understands that if you continue in your sin, it could potentially separate you from being with him in eternity. Now let's consider, how long was Israel under the Midianites' oppression until they called out to God? What did the Bible just say here? Did, they, did you know, the Midianites show up one day and they called out to God immediately? No. Seven years. It took them seven years of oppression to finally be humbled, to call out to God. Maybe the early days weren't so bad. God generally does things in stages. Maybe Midian the first year 
just ask for 10%. You know, they came to some of the leaders in Israel and said, you know what? We're really well-trained warriors. We're sitting, surrounding you on your borders. We're protecting you and serving as a buffer from other people who would try to attack you. I'll tell you what, in exchange for this protection, why don't you just give us 10% of your crops? You're living in a promised land. You're probably, you're probably producing 200% of what you need anyway. So, you know, your God is blessing you. Just give us 10%. Everything will be fine. They agreed to it. Then the next year they came back and said, you know what, all this protection this year, it's going to cost you 20%. I would imagine that a few people said, oh, that kind of hurts, but uh, we can afford it, I guess. I mean, we're, we're, we're still prospering, it's okay. Next year, 40%. Maybe some of the livestock, too. Now maybe a person or two stands up and says, look, I don't know who you guys think you are. You guys ain't doing anything special. All you do is are out there living on a border. And they were probably killed immediately. And that's when the oppression really started. Next year, 50%. And now they're raiding houses. Make sure there's not any weapons for them to fight back. The next year, 75%. Take your weapons, your livestock, and let's add your young daughters and sons. We need some sacrifices for our gods. The next year, they just take everything. And now they have roaming patrols looking for any sign of uprising. And this is when the brutal oppression sets in for Israel. That's why it took them seven years, probably. If any of you have been involved in a deep, addictive level sin, this kind of sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? You see, sin always starts out not so bad. It only takes 10% of my time, 10% of my money, maybe you know, only 5% or anything. And you know what? It's actually kind of cool. It's actually kind of pleasurable. fills that gap within me that, that I, haven't, I, I don't want to release to God yet. It's exciting. I mean, when you were a kid and you're sitting out back and you, know, you stole one of your parents' cigarettes and you're trying it for the first time, it's kind of exciting. You know, you're doing something that's forbidden, something that's, that's you know, really cool and makes you look cool and everything. You have that sense of feeling alive and excited about doing something you. And that's because our fleshly side loves pampering and it rewards you with that sense of pleasure. But if you leave it go, it starts taking more of your time. The amount of energy you have to give to it and to keep that excitement up gets more and more. That's when sin starts to hurt a little. Then your mind starts to get twisted into protecting the thing that instead of bringing you pleasure anymore, is bringing you nothing but misery and guilt and pain. And part of you wishes it would just go away. But now it's got you. You're so twisted up in the lies you've had to tell yourself and other people, that false front that you've shown everybody, and the covering up that sin that you just long for freedom. But now it's going to require something even more dear to you to give up, and that's your pride. And that's where we start to look at the life of Gideon, and we see this truth in his life. And that's why the third thing that we see in Gideon's life is that the longer you were in sin, the more radical would be the required repentance in order to gain complete freedom. Keep in mind that during this time, Gideon is involved in this same exact idol worship that everyone else is. 
In fact, his father, whose land he is living on, has the largest altar to Baal and Asherah in the area. So his father's like running the whole idolatrous thing. He is deeply involved in this himself. And you might think, well, that's just worshiping a dumb idol. What, what, what possible harm could be of that, outside that you're not just worshiping God? Because the worship of Baal involved ritual prostitution and sexual sin. And in radical cases, human sacrifice. The Asherah pole on the side of it was just in case your sexual sin brought upon a pregnancy. Because then you could take that child and sacrifice it to Asherah. That's pretty deep sin, isn't it? That's pretty callous disregard for the seriousness of your sin. And God says something about Baal and Asherah worship that, that is just amazing to me. He says in Jeremiah 17, or excuse me, 19.5, he said, they, God, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. He's, he said, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command, mention, and nor did it even enter my mind. Let's think about that for a second. God is expressing amazement here. God is saying, I am the omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe who knows everything known, unknown, or can be known, and yet this depravity you're doing even surprises me. And that is the sin that Gideon and his family is involved in. And that is why God called Gideon to make such a public statement. And we, re and we read in Judges chapter 6, 25, what God requires of Gideon here. That same night the Lord said to him, Take a second bull from your father's herd, one that is seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. How many people know that was probably a pretty radical act in that time? The 21st century equivalent was, let's just, let's just make believe on the outside of town here, there is a very popular casino with adult entertainment. Let's just say it's huge. Biggest casino in Wisconsin. People come from all over the place to go to this casino. This casino just employs hundreds of the people of Whitehall. And the people that it doesn't directly employ go there every Friday night to enjoy the buffet and to, to gamble and, and enjoy the adult entertainment. And then one day, early on a Saturday morning, we hear the fire alarm go off. Sirens wailing, fire department goes and rushes to the scene and finds the casino just pretty much burnt right to the ground. And in its place, there's two burned members forming a cross that somebody had nailed together and stuck up. An investigation happens, and they find out that the son of the casino owner burnt the place to the ground and put up that cross as a testament to God. How much controversy do you think that would cause around here? That's not something that's going to go unnoticed, is it? You throw sin right in their face and there's going to be a violent reaction. And that's what happened to Gideon. 
But that is what was required of him, to make that kind of radical departure from the very thing that was keeping him and the rest of Israel under this oppression of Midian. So what's the takeaway for us today? The longer that you allow yourself to remain in sin, especially if God is dealing with you on it, the deeper you go into it, I'm telling you that the more radical steps you're going to have to take to be rid of it. There's way too much easy grace in the church today. You think, we say a quick prayer and everything's going to be fine, but then Sunday night you're right back into it again. That happens over and over and over again. And I've been there. I've been there in my own life. And, it, and I know that repentance without, or that um, repentance without repentance, there is no grace. In other words, if you say I repent, but you don't actually turn from it and erase any different way or any way of returning to that sin, there is no grace, there is no forgiveness, and most importantly, there's no freedom from that oppression you're under. Jesus put it like this. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. What Jesus is saying here is that sin hates light. Sin can't thrive in light because exposed sin loses its power. I was once in a revival meeting where the church leaders got together before the service to pray. We had, had flown in an, an evangelist who was fairly well-known at the time. And he had uh, come to the church. And I walked in that night, and I think it was the third night of the service, Tuesday night. And the evangelist was just at the altar, just weeping, crying out to God. And I was just like, wow, you know, usually this guy is really put together and now he's just kind of this, you know, blubbering mess down there. And I was, I was kind of, you know, trying to, you know, what's, what's wrong with this guy? You know, is, is God, what's God moving on him to do tonight? And I was fairly new in the Lord, very new in the ministry. I was just decided to, to enter into the ministry. And this evangelist guy stood up and he asked us if he could bring the, you know, the, the pastors of the church into a private room and talk to us. And so we left the, the initial prayer meeting we walked in there. He confessed to us that several weeks prior, he had been on the road steady for weeks, hadn't been home. He was doing meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. He'd be done with one meeting, getting on a plane, flying somewhere, and doing another meeting that night. And he just kept going and going and going. And he had so overbooked himself that his prayer time and Bible study, he just didn't have time for it. Not even on the plane. It was the only place he could really sleep. He flew into a larger city for his next revival meeting, and he went into his hotel room and he turned the TV on just to catch the news. Unfortunately, the person who had the room before him had rented out the porn channel for 24 hours, and the management didn't reset the TV like they were supposed to. And so as soon as he turns the TV on, X-rated videos are showing. And he's told us instead of turning it off immediately and calling the management to rip the TV out of the room, he ended up just sitting there and watching it for a long time. 
And the next morning when he was getting ready to go to his next meeting, he had this overwhelming conviction come upon him. Rightfully so. And he went to the church that he was supposed to speak at an hour ahead of time and spent an hour on the altar repenting of his actions. He still did his church meetings, the spirit moved in power, but he himself felt empty inside. God seemed distant, he felt the Lord tell him that he needed to confess it publicly to somebody or a group of people. And he said, well God, don't you, don't you know who I am in my, in my denomination? I mean, if I confess this, people will think less of me. If I confess this, it's, it could ruin my ministry. If I confess this, he could even pull my, my ministry credentials. But this empty, and he so he refused. He refused to do what God was telling him to do. And he just kept fighting God and fighting God, and this emptiness grew inside him until he actually couldn't hear God's voice anymore. Leading him to today where he finally broke before God and he confessed it to us. And you know what I have to tell you this morning? Bar none, that was the most powerful spiritual meeting I had ever been in. The power of God fell in that meeting. We didn't even think about leaving until 2 in the morning. I remember at the time our pastor was very suit and tie and, and that's the way that pastors should dress and everything. And I remember being toward the front of the church and the power of God being so heavy in that room. It's going to sound silly, but I took my coat off and put it over my head because the glory of God was that strong. I just felt almost like I had to hide from it. People publicly confessed sin. Leaders in our church, leaders from other churches, stood up at a microphone that was set up to publicly confess sin they'd been hiding for years. And as I said, the church didn't close up until well after 2 a.m. on a work night. And there were still people there in the morning just seeking God. All because there was obedience in that leader. Was sin deeply embedded in this man? No. It was a one-time thing. Did he turn himself over to it? Again, he immediately sought God in repentance. But because of his position in the kingdom of God and the manner in which the Holy Spirit moved through him, he had, was required to have a greater act of repentance and humbling of self for him to be truly set free. That's why James... Jesus' little brother says, not so many of you should aspire to be a teacher because as teachers occur the stricter judgment. And many times we take that truth to mean a stricter judgment before God and that would be a correct interpretation of the scripture. However, it also means a higher level of immediately, immediate accountability before God. And because of his position, because of how God used him and, and moved through him, he occurred that stricter judgment because God would not allow that seed of Satan that Satan ambushed him with, and that's what it was, it was an ambush of Satan to gain any root in his life. He, God would not allow that. And that is an act of love. That is an act of love. Gideon starts to walk in obedience to God to deliver Israel from Midian. But there is one more thing in his life that we have to consider. Is that it will take a while to rebuild your spiritual house when you have come out of that kind of sin. When you have allowed things that don't please God to exist for too long in your life, that healing process could take a little while. 
When God does that kind of surgery on you and the cancer of that sin may be removed, but it's going to be a while before you completely feel whole again. And that's where Gideon is here. He's made his public declaration and that cancer is gone. But his spirituality still needs some work and we see that in Judges 6. God calls Gideon, he obeys, but there's still a lot of doubt in Gideon about God's plan. Judges 6.36 says that Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and run out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time let the fleece be dry and the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Not only was the fleece dry, but all the ground was covered with dew. You see, even though Gideon is forgiven here and restored to God's favor and about to be used in a mighty way, it's going to take a little while for that house to be rebuilt in his spirit, that house of faith. You see, at first in the fleece is that he still doesn't trust God totally, and his spiritual house is still pretty much just framework that God is going to have to build on a little. You see, God realizes that Gideon is still very young in the faith, and God works in him in a very unique way. In Judges chapter 7, there's a very cool historical account of Israel's deliverance from Midian. God tells Gideon, Assemble the warriors of the tribes immediately surrounding him. And 32,000 men answer the call. Keep in mind, though, these are 32,000 men who have been beaten up for seven years. They're going to be against 140,000 well-trained warriors. They're outnumbered four to one. God tells Gideon, you know what? We need to get rid of some of these guys. Tell everyone who shakes in fear to leave. That's in accordance with Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. Imagine Gideon's reaction. God, we're already outnumbered four to one. I've made a battle plan that might work for this, and I can't really see sending away anybody who shakes with fear. We can still use them somewhere. And, you know... Okay, okay, I'll do it. We'll probably only lose a few because nobody's going to want to admit in front of another guy that he's scared, right? I mean, us men, I'm brave. I'm not going to admit that. Well, what happens is two-thirds of his men leave. He now has 10,000 men. He's outnumbered 14 to 1 now. God looks around and says, Gideon, you still have too many people here. Let's cut them down a little further. So God gives them instructions. Take them down to the creek, watch them how do they drink water out of the river. Some will stick their whole face in the water and some will kneel down and cup the water in their hands. And I've heard dozens of interpretations of how and why God selected these people. I've heard that some people, the guys who knelt down and cupped the water, they're the alert ones. They're the ones that are looking for at the hills and, get in, and ready for the attack of the enemy. Or I've heard that the ones who kneel, they're in a position of prayer and, and that's why God chose those kind of people. Or, you know, the ones that, that stuck their face in the water, they're the ones that are drinking like dogs, and dogs are unclean animals, and that's why God made that decision. I've, I've heard all of these. And 
and that God was selecting the 300 best warriors to fight his battle for him. All these might be legitimately reasons why God choose whom he choose. I recently heard a more interesting interpretation on the way home from work a few months ago. These 300 men were not the Spartans of Thermopylae. They were not the one that the movie 300 was made of. Okay? These were not the huge, buff, warrior, Spartan guys. They're not the elite of the elite. They're not the Navy SEALs. They're not the Army Rangers. They're not the Delta Force all rolled up into one. I think that the men who cupped their hands were probably the old fat guys. Follow me around with this. Think about this. You know, us, us guys who have a little bit of a belly, you know, we get the early arthritis in our knees. Kneeling down is kind of hard for us, you know. We can't get that close to the water to stick our face in it. That's about as far as we're going to get. We're probably not going to be the ones that go and fight the main battle. We're going to be the ones that say, okay, if there's a wounded person, you can drag them off the field. Or, if, you know, you guys go guard the supplies. You guys stay in the back. And, and, you know, let the young, fit guys go and fight the battle. And God said, Gideon, these are the ones you're going to defeat Midian with. And I imagine Gideon's response, God, we are now outnumbered 467 to 1. That means that each one of these men have to kill 467 people. They have to fight 467 people. And my army all qualifies for AARP. And they're on disability, God. They probably were at special touch camp last year. I mean, they, they, they're just not the people that we need. And what God tells them is that, Gideon, if it's just you and me on this field today, that army is still outnumbered. God reinforces this by showing something to Gideon. While Gideon has been sweating and watching his army run away, God has been behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, giving dreams to the Midianites of their, of their eventual defeat. And God allows Gideon to sneak down into the enemy's camp and overhear them talking about the dreams that they're having. And in the dream, one of them dreamed that a loaf of barley bread rolls down into the camp and wipes out Midian. And the friend of the dreamer said, that barley loaf is Gideon. We're doomed. He's going to defeat us. Now keep in mind what they're saying is a barley loaf. Sometimes that, the imagery here escapes us. This is like saying a moldy, stiff piece of rotten feed from the backside of the barn is going to roll down the hill and kill us. You see, these people knew who Gideon was. They, they, they worshipped at that altar that his father had. They knew that Gideon was this worthless thing, but they knew this worthless thing had God behind him. You see, Gideon, apart from God, was useless. Gideon with God was unstoppable. And God uses those foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God will use the things of this world, the things that everybody thinks is useless, and he used what everybody thought was useless to gain one of the most spectacular victories in biblical history. Gideon was saved. Gideon was forgiven. Gideon was to be used by God. But God had to restore that correct vision of who he was in Gideon's heart and soul. God took all those years that sin had clouded Gideon's vision. Because that's what sin does to you, is it distorts your view of God. But God built Gideon's vision back to what it should be. And that vision is, God is great. Amen. We are not. 
God is on a throne. He is the king, and we are not. God is God, and we are not. And nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible for those who trust in him. You see, that is what made Gideon a hero of the faith. Everything Gideon did from the time that he surrendered his heart to Jesus to the time that he led the nation to defeat Midian made him look like an idiot, made him look like a complete fool for God. And what we learn from his life is that God's ways are not our ways. God will not share his glory with another. We just need to yield. We just need to surrender and let God be God. Amen?